Good morning. Okay, so it's a lot of verses, and I'll try to um, kind of head you up with the verse. All right, so um, before I start, Jerubbabel, I've practiced, Jerubbabel is Gideon. Okay. Now Abimelech, the son of Jerubbabel, went to Shechem to his mother's relatives and said to them and to the whole clan of his mother's family, say in the ears of all the leaders of Shechem, which is better for you, that all 70 of the sons of Jerubbabel rule over you or that one rule over you? Remember also that I'm your bone and your flesh. And his mother relatives spoke all these words on his behalf in the ears of all the leaders of Shechem. And their hearts inclined to follow Abimelech, for they said, he is our brother. And they gave him 70 pieces of silver out of the house of Baal-berith, with which Abimelech hired worthless and reckless fellows who followed him. And he went to his father's house at Ophrah and killed his brothers, the sons of Jerubel, 70 men on one stone. But Jotham, the youngest son of Jerubel, was left, for he hid himself. And all the leaders of Shechem came together, and all, all Beth Milo, and they went and made Abimelech king by the oak of the pillar at Shechem. When it was told to Jotham, he went and stood on top of Mount Gerizim and cried aloud and said to him, Listen to me, you leaders of Shechem, that God may listen to you. Jump down to verse 16. Now, therefore, if you acted in good faith and integrity when you made Abimelech king, and if you have dealt with Jerubel and his house and have done to him as his deeds deserved, jump to verse 19. If you then have acted in good faith and integrity with Jerubel and with his house this day, then rejoice in Abimelech and let him also rejoice in you. But if not, let fire come out from Abimelech and devour the leaders of Shechem and Beth Milo. And let fire come out from leaders of Shechem and from Beth Milo and devour Abimelech. And Jotham ran away and fled, and fled and went to Beer and lived there because of Abimelech, his brother. Abimelech ruled over Israel three years, and God sent an evil spirit between Abimelech and the leaders of Shechem. And the leaders of Shechem dealt treacherously with Abimelech that the violence done to the 70 sons of Jerubel might come and their blood be laid on Abimelech, their brother, who killed them, and on the men of Shechem, who strengthened his hands to kill his brothers. Now we're going to verse 50. Then Abimelech went to Tebez and encamped against Tebez and captured it. But there was a strong tower within the city, and all the men and women and all the leaders of the city fled to it and shut themselves in. And they went up to the roof of the tower, and Abimelech came to the tower and fought against it and drew near to the door of the tower to burn it with fire. And a certain woman threw an upper millstone on Abimelech's head and crushed his skull. Then he called quickly to the young man, his armor bearer, and said to him, Draw your sword and kill me, lest they say of me a woman killed him. And his young man thrust him through, and he died. And when the men of Israel saw that Abimelech was dead, everyone departed to his home. Thus God returned the evil of Abimelech, which he committed against his father, and killing his 70 brothers. And God also made all the evil of the men of Shechem return on their heads. And upon them came the curse of Jotham, the son of Jerubel. Now we're at chapter 10, verse 6. The people of Israel again did what was, what was evil in the sight of the Lord and served the Baals and the Ashtaroth, the gods of Syria, the gods of Sidon, the gods of Moab, the gods of Ammonites, and the gods of the Philistines. And they forsook the Lord and did not serve him. So the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, and he sold them into the hands of the Philistines 
into the hand of the Ammonites, and they crushed and oppressed the people of Israel that year. For 18 years they oppressed all the people of Israel who were beyond the Jordan in the land of the Amorites, which is in Gilead. And the Ammonites crossed the Jordan to fight against Judah and against Benjamin and against the house of Ephraim, so that Israel was severely distressed. And the people of Israel cried out to the Lord, saying, We have sinned against you because we have forsaken our God and have served the Baals. And the Lord said to the people of Israel, Did I not save you from the Egyptians and from the Amorites and from the Ammonites and from the Philistines? The Sidonians also and the Amalekites and the Maonites oppressed you, and you cried out to me, and I saved you out of their hand. Yet you have forsaken me and served other gods." Therefore, I will save you no more. Go and cry out to the gods whom you have chosen. Let them save you in the time of your distress. And the people of Israel said to the Lord, We have sinned. Do to us whatever seems good to you. Only please deliver us this day. So they put away the foreign gods from among them and served the Lord, and he became impatient over the misery of Israel. Then the Ammonites were called to arms, and they encamped in Gilead, and the people of Israel came together, and they encamped at Mizpah. And the people, the leaders of Gilead, said to one another, Who is this man who will begin to fight against the Ammonites? He shall head over all the inhabitants of Gilead. Now Jephthah, the Gileadite, was a mighty warrior, but he was the son of a prostitute. Gilead was the father of Jephthah, and Gilead's wife also bore him sons. And when his wife's sons grew up, they drove Jephthah out and said to him, You shall not have an inheritance in our father's house, for you are the son of another woman. Then Jephthah fled from the brothers and lived in the land of Tob, and worthless fellows collected around Jephthah and went, or went out with him. Now we're at verse 17. Oh, excuse me, 5. And when the Ammonites made war against Israel, the elders of Gilead went to bring Jephthah from the land of Tob. And they said to Jephthah, Come and be our leader, that we may fight with the Ammonites. But Jephthah said to the elders of Gilead, Did you not hate me and drive me out of my father's house? Now we're skipping to verse 29. Then the Spirit of the Lord was upon Jephthah, and he passed through Gilead and Manasseh and passed on to Mizpah of Gilead. And from Mizpah of Gilead, he passed on to the Ammonites. And Jephthah made a vow to the Lord and said, If you will give me the Ammonites into my hands, then whatever comes out of the doors of my house to meet me when I return in peace from the Ammonites shall be the Lord's, and I will offer it up for a burnt offering. So Jephthah crossed over to the Ammonites to fight against them, and the Lord gave them into his hand. And he struck them from the Aurora to the neighborhood of Mineth, twenty cities, and as far as abel Kiramim, with a great blow. So the Ammonites were subdued before the people of Israel. Then Jephthah came to his, ho- to his home at Mizpah, and behold, his daughter came out to meet him with tambourines and with dances. She was his only child. Beside her, he had neither son nor daughter, and as soon as he saw her, he tore his clothes and said, Alas, my daughter, you have brought me very low, and you have become the cause of great trouble for me, for I have opened my mouth to the Lord, and I cannot take back my vow. And she said to him, My father, you have opened your mouth to the Lord. Do to me according to what has gone out of your mouth, now that the Lord has avenged you on your enemies, on the Ammonites. So she said to her father, Let this thing be done to me. Leave me alone two months, that I may go up and down on the mountains and weep for my virginity, I and my companions. So he said, Go. Then he sent her away for two months, and she departed. 
she and her companions, and wept for her virginity on the mountains. And at the end of two months, she returned to her father, who did with her according to his vow that he had made. She had never known a man, and it became a custom in Israel that the daughters of Israel went year by year to lament the daughter of Jephthah, the Gileadite, four days in the year. i got to take a breath. All right, uh, let's pray. Father, um, it's a dry land, and judges help us to remember that we aren't left in this cycle of sin. We think this doesn't have anything to do with us, but we have sibling rivalry. We have envy. We kill because of our anger. We have grief. We have unfaithfulness. We have idolatry. We curse others. We have senseless vows. But yet you're impatient over our misery, just as impatient over misery of Israel. God, may your sovereign hand teach us, help us to walk in your path, uh, help Lance decrease and you increase, and let your words enlighten our heart. Let our eyes to see, our ears to hear, our minds to understand, and our hearts believe. We love you. It's in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Good job, honey. Well done. That was good stuff right there. All right, now you know why I had to have my wife do that one, because not only was there a lot of verses and a lot of uh, difficult words, but also we jumped around quite a bit. So um, it's a difficult thing to determine which verses to read. It is all God's word. It is all important. And yet um, we're only here for a certain amount of time in any given day. So um, here's what I know. I told our AV team, I cut two sermons this morning, leaving only one left. At least that's the intention. We'll see if that actually holds up. And so if you're anything like me, when I read through Judges 9, 10, 11, and then we didn't do 12, but we're going to count 12 today, if you read through it, um, if you read through those chapters, um, I'm left with the impression uh, of the movie 300. And the reason why is because if you remember the movie 300, and if you have never seen the movie 300, shame, shame. Okay, but King Leonidas is, uh, is at this scene, right, and there's this messenger of Persia that comes in that demands his surrender with a skull of conquered kings, and he lays them at the feet of the, of the people of Sparta, and, and Leonidas is just not having it, right? And he looks at the messenger, and he's, and he's about to kill him, and the messenger knows it. And he's like, you better choose your next words wisely, king. They may be your last and he looks at him, and he's like, I'm about to kill you. And the messenger basically says, this is blasphemy, and this is madness. And when I read through Judges 9 through 12, I, the only thing I could think of was this is absolute madness. And Leonidas responds, right, and he goes, madness? This is Sparta. And he kicks him into the pit, right? And I think for us, we got to go like, madness? This is Judges. Like, it's just normal for them. For us, it's so crazy. It's so chaotic. But for them, they remember, they set up themselves as king. They set themselves up as rulers over their own little universe. And so it just continues to descend into more and more chaos. Rest assured, if a nation or a family or an individual shirks off the boundaries as not king and continues to usurp the authority that God has given us, and we try to be king, it's only going to get worse and worse as life goes on. And Judges holds the mirror to, up to us. Because the reality is not only are we going, well, I think I'd like to be my own king. We don't say it though, right? Instead, what we'll do is that we put little things on our Jeeps 
Not that I have a Jeep, but if I had a Jeep, it could be on there. We put things on our Jeeps, and it says, not all who wander are lost. And we go, oh, that's fun. Let's go get some adventure and just get a little off the beaten path. But we also take hold of that mantra when we come to Jesus. And we go, well, you know, not all that are far from him have gotten far from him on accident. There's some of us in the room that actually like to wander away from him, and we do it on purpose. And we enjoy that desert experience because, after all, it may be dry and it may be a weary land, but we're, we're able to, you know, kind of command that ship out there. Jesus is not ruling over us. We can rule over ourselves in that place. And that's what Judges continues to warn us again, against again and again. And here's what I think is beneath all of this, is that um, for the Israelites in these four chapters, much less the rest of the book of Judges, what you're going to find again and again is that they wander away from Yahweh. They wander away from the covenant-keeping love of God and the, the true God that only is God. They wander away from him and they go after other gods because they can manipulate that God. They can offer a sacrifice. They can go to the temple. And I've, I've outlined how heinous those two practices are week on and week out. They can go to those temples. They can do those things in an effort to manipulate and that God's attention for whatever it is that they need next. Now, if you think that's a world that's far away, we need to do some more confession. We need to do some more examination that we too approach God in a way where we just want to manipulate him. We know that because we don't really pray until we're in trouble. That's when our prayer life starts to kick, kick into, into action, right? When we're having a great day, it's really difficult to remember, like, I am still dependent. My great day is a gift, and my prayer isn't out of desperation, but out of gratitude. And it's a totally different relationship. But we do find ourselves in the same kind of way. And here's the, the beautiful thing. The Lord, Yahweh, will not be controlled. He won't be. He's going to do what he wants, when he wants, how he wants, and with whom he wants. And here's the good news underneath all of this chaos that's way better than us getting our way and manipulating our God to do what we want, when he wants, how he wants, and with, he wants, with who he wants. It's way better. So we're picking up on the chapters, right? We're going through four chapters, and you might be thinking, why are we doing that? I really don't have a reason, other than uh, Easter is on its way. And by the time we get to Easter, we need to be in full-on celebration mode of the resurrection. And I gotta tell you, we got to get out of Judges to be able to do that, okay? So we're going to finish Judges before uh, Palm Sunday. We're going to have Palm Sunday. We're going to have Easter Sunday, and then we're going to just, like, figure out how the resurrection and how the gospel continues to infect every area of our life for the season of Easter tide. So it is the day. Four chapters it is. But we're only going to get through the highlights right here. And here's what we're going to do. We're going to focus on these two Judges that really, um, really bookend this time. There are multiple other judges that are mentioned that we actually had to skip, Tola and Jair, and then if you get into verse uh, chapter 12, you've got Ibzon, Elon, and Abdon, and there's not a lot that's really said about them, other than they got a lot of wives, they got a lot of sons, and a lot of donkeys. And we go, okay, I don't really know what that's about. But that's, that's, that's the judge. And God gives use all kinds of different people, even people that are barely mentioned, right? There's some good news in all of that. But I think for us today, we have to look at two figures that have a lot in common and actually have a lot of text associated with their reign. The first one is Abimelech, and the second one is Jephthah. If you'll notice, both of them are illegitimate children. 
both of them. Abimelech is the son of a concubine, which is a mistress, and Jephthah is the son of a prostitute. And both of them have father wounds. Both of them have dysfunctional families, and both of them end up having that father wound spill out all over everyone around them in one way or another. Now, I don't have a ton of time to go into a father wound, but I want you to just see, if you don't deal with your father wound, if you don't deal with your mother wound, and, and do you know what I mean by that? These are the wounds of our, 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 our families growing up. They didn't mean to. They did their best. But nonetheless, we walk broken and with limps. And we lead in such a way or we love in such a way. And those sorts of things start to create narratives in our hearts and in our souls that if they are not addressed are completely contradictory to the kingdom narrative of us not being orphans, to be on our own, but having a father to care for us. And I'll unpack that a little bit. But here's what you need to know about your father wound, your mother wound, your family wound, and me too. If we don't handle it, if we don't dig in with a trusted friend and a good spiritual biblical counsel, if we don't do these things over time, if we do walk for a long time with that wound, it's going to hurt others. The old axiom is true. Hurt people hurt people. And Abimelech is like the crowning achievement of hurting, hurt people hurting people. So we'll look into that. And I think here's what we're going to do. Like three questions to kind of frame our time so we can make sense of these four chapters. First question, how do you deal with your anger? Oh, just light and breezy here this morning. No, no, we're in the book of Judges, so we just got to get right to it, and we can't be wasting time, right? How do you deal with your anger? Abimelech, with his father wound, goes into these, this whole thing. He forces his way into power by two means. He gets his mom to start whispering half-truths around the city. He says, hey, would you rather have 70 rulers, or would you rather have one? And everybody would go, well, I'd rather have one. Okay, well, also, don't forget, you and I are related. These other guys, I don't know about that. And all of a sudden, you start to see this momentum of half-truths, and then he goes and he takes out every single one of Gideon, the last chosen judge of God. He takes out all of Gideon's sons except one, Jotham. So he is enraged with this father wound. He got some, some issue with his dad, obviously, because he has taken it out on his entire family. And he's killing all of them on one stone. And as he does this, Right, you start to see Abimelech start rampaging through this area of Shechem. Uh, if I, we were able to read the whole thing, what we would see is that Jotham, the one lone son of Gideon that survives, pronounces a curse over the people of Shechem and over Abimelech, which comes true. He actually does uh, basically set fire to Shechem, and they not only uh, die, right, but then he goes to the next town. And they, he tries to do the same thing. He tries to set this tower on fire. And in a panic, some woman grabs, was probably, you know, we don't know the details, but probably was grinding some, some flour, grabs the upper millstone, which was the top part, the grinding part, takes that up to the hill, up to this tower, and maybe throws it at him, drops it on him. I don't know what happens, but kills Abimelech, cracks his skull open. He about falling over to the ground and says, hey, no, we can't have this. We can't have a woman be taking me down. Can you just, uh, you know, spear me through? And they go, oh, that sounds weird. Okay. And he's dead. And what you find, he had three years of a rule, and it is absolutely bloody and a mess. There's nothing good that comes out of Abimelech's reign. 
the, the land doesn't get rest. The people don't get deliverance from their enemies. Why? Because it was an enemy from within. They weren't fighting some foreign nation at this point. All of a sudden, their ruler who had set himself up as king was coming against them. A very difficult and a very dark day. And so I just kind of come back to ultimately the text because I think what we can find is a hint here at the end, which I don't know that we read this part, but this is the summary statement of Abimelech's rule the narrator gives us in verse 56 of chapter 9. If you've got your Bible, we're going to be using it, and I would encourage you to follow along. These won't come up on the screen, I don't think. Maybe they will. I don't remember. But it says this, chapter 9, verse 56, thus God returned the evil of Abimelech which he committed against his father in killing his 70 brothers. And God also made all the evil of the men of Shechem return on their heads. And upon them came the curse of Jotham, the son of Gideon. We see this summary statement of his reign and his rule, and it's nothing but vengeance. Nothing but anger spilling out over the entire towns of Israel. And so we return to this question, what do you do with your anger? How do you deal with it? Because rest assured, if you're not dealing with it, it's dealing with you. You're either going to get control over it it's going to con- or it's going to control you. Shechem Abimelech is this great example of, of unbridled anger. All of us are given to the way of Abimelech on one way or another, and we want revenge for something that's happened to us. It may not be you doing this to me. But if you slight me for a little bit, man, I got all the rage that might be decades, fueled by decades of injustice against me. We all can have that in our hearts and in our souls. We justify uh, our anger with our history of rejection. We amplify another's sin against us like the unmerciful servant that Jesus warns us not to be, right? We just hold people up by their throat for every little thing they do against us, making them pay. And we forget that we have been forgiven far more by the Lord Jesus. We want payback for things that people actually didn't do because we've got wounds fueling this campaign of vengeance. Abimelech challenges all of us who have a hard time forgiving other people. And notice I am saying all of us, I'm in on this. So how are you handling life's disappointments? How do you handle when people disappoint you, when they unintentionally sin against you, or when they intentionally sin against you? How are you handling those moments when they talk bad about you, right? When they come against you to your face, no matter what it is, are you handling them out of some wound from the past, or are you handling them out of the present? And the present is this, you've been forgiven much. And so you must also then forgive much. There are at least three things that we do with our anger, right? We stuff it. I'm angry at myself. How dare I? I can't believe. We deny it. Well, I'm not really angry. And everybody else around you go, are you sure? Or you express it. Ooh, that's me. I like to express it. It's not the best. I was telling this story yesterday on Sunday night last week. Um, I didn't preach, so like a lot of my energy didn't get expressed, didn't have anything to coach, right? A lot of energy didn't get expressed, could have done some yard work, but who wants to do that, right? And by the end of the day, I just started barking at people. (laughs) Grumpy pants came out. My wife just leaned over at me and she goes, hey, when you're home too long, we don't want you here anymore. (laughs) 
fair enough. I'll go out for dinner, apparently. Um, but, like, there's just something in us that we will do, right? We're going to stuff it, blame ourselves, deny it, didn't happen, express it, blame someone else. All three can be sin, but it's not just a, it's not a sin to be angry. I think in our culture, we think, okay, if you're an angry person, or if you have struggled with anger, or if you had an outburst in anger, that all of a sudden we, we just assume it's sin. It may not be. Ephesians 4 does say, be angry, and yet do not sin. What it is a sin to be is given to anger. And Abimelech's whole life was fueled and given to anger. You see this in Proverbs 22. It says this in verse 24 and 25, make no friendship with a man given to anger. Not that has an anger issue or struggles with it or could be angry. Given to it. They've submitted to anger. Nor go with a wrathful man lest you learn his ways and entangle yourself in a snare. It continues on in Proverbs 29, 22. A man of wrath stirs up strife and when given to anger causes much transgression. Shechem is a man who has been given to anger and is causing much transgression. Um, if you know me and you know my story, um, I was an angry kid. Um, most of you, uh, you know me now, that's helpful. Uh, I've been a believer now for, uh, it'll be 25 years. I'm less angry today uh, than I was as a kid. Um, but like my childhood was marked with confusion, disorientation, and that just bred in me a whole lot of frustration and anger. Um, like to the point where um, I got in a fight, like it should just be a normal fight as like a seven-year-old in your front yard with your buddy. That's what it should be. But we're wrestling, and I actually caused him to have a bloody nose one day, and he said, I'm going to kill you. And my crazy brain went, oh, he really is going to kill me. I'm going to go inside and get a knife. So I went inside, and I got a knife, and I tried to throw it at my friend. Do you see anger? Lots of anger. Lots of rage. Lots of disorientation. Lots of confusion. Why? Because I learned at a young age, no one's going to defend me. I got to do it myself. No one's going to protect me. No one's coming for me. There's no hero on the horizon. It's up to little old me. And so I'm going to like way overcompensate. And this carried on for many, many years. Certainly until I became a believer and certainly into following Jesus. Until you deal with little Lance. You deal with whomever it may be. And you go back and you remind that little kid of the gospel. Because you know what the gospel is? The gospel isn't that you're alone. The gospel is you'll never be alone. And if someone comes against me, who cares? Because God is for me. See, that's the reality of what's lurking behind Shechem, what's lurking behind Abimelech. We could give ourselves to raging out all over our brothers and sisters, or we could deal with what actually went wrong and bring ourselves underneath the tender and the loving care of our Father who promises us, even when we think he has abandoned us, to never abandon us. Even though we think he is far off, he is yet near. And he gives us all that we need for the task at hand. Okay, so there you go. There's Abimelech all in, wrapped up in one little, little bow. But Israel slips into further sin as a result of this. We can't read all of this again, but what you would find is that they go after not just the gods of the Canaanites, 
But now all of a sudden, their sin multiplies into seven other foreign gods, and there's a reason why it says, and they went after that God, and they went after that God, and they went after that God, and it continues on, almost ad nauseum, just to help us to see they are slipping further and further away from the king. And so, in chapter 13, basically God says, God will save them no more. It is a terrible thing to come to the end of God's salvation. It is a terrible thing. The writer of Hebrews says, if you continue on in sin, it is a terrible thing to fall into the hands of a living God. And he says, he will judge the people of God as much as he will judge non-believers. It'll be different, but I don't know what that's going to look like, but if the Bible says it's a terrible thing to fall into his hands, I don't want to fall into his hands of judgment. And the Israelites have fallen into those hands, and he says, I will save you no more. That's the end of anger. You slip away, and you go, and you do your own thing, and eventually God gives you what you want, independence. And so we get to this next section of chapter 11 with Jephthah. And here's the question I think there. Whereas Abimelech really helps us see, like, how are you going to deal with your anger? Uh, Jephthah, I think, helps us Ask this question, what do you do when God can't be manipulated? What do you do when God will not answer your prayers or your sacrifices or your faithfulness or your history or whatever it may be? What are you going to do? You see, it's one thing to be the 71st son of a former judge of Israel by way of a concubine. It is another thing to be the son of a prostitute. You see, in Jotham's uh, sorry, not Jotham, Jephthah's uh, reality. He, um, he uh, ultimately didn't make his own way to become judge or king of Israel. He got kicked out. He got rejected from his family. They said, hey, look, you're a threat to all the inheritance, and I'm going to need you to go now. And he goes until they need him. And isn't that convenient? Isn't that how it works sometimes? That you get left alone until someone needs you, and they go, ah, oh, boy, I got to tell you, these Ammonites, they are a real trouble for us, and we're going to need someone to step into this space. Hey, y'all remember Jephthah that we hate? Some of the prostitute hangs out with the gang? You know, I bet he'd be a good warrior. Actually, after all, he is known as a mighty warrior. Let's call upon Jephthah. He ain't got nobody else. He, he'll, he, we can probably convince him to do it. So he comes in, and they have this whole agreement that they start to argue through, ultimately that we had to skip, that ultimately tells us, like, all right, there's an oath here that they say, and I'll just, I'll just say it for us. I'll read it. Uh, I believe it's in verse 9 of chapter 11. He goes in, and they basically know that they've rejected him, and he says this in verse 9 of chapter 11. Jephthah said to the elders of Gilead, if you bring me home again to fight against the Ammonites, and the Lord gives them over to me, I will be your head. Leader, ruler, judge, you pushed me out, I ain't coming back as your brother. I'm coming back as your king. And they say, verse 10, um, yeah, and the elders of Gilead said to Jephthah, the Lord be, will be witness between us if we do not do as you say. They're making an oath. They're making a covenant. So Jephthah went with the elders of Gilead, and the people made him head and leader over them. And Jephthah spoke all his words before the Lord at Mizpah. They're making a covenant and an oath with one another that if this goes down, how they all think it's going to go down, Jephthah's going to come back in, and with his gang of misfits, he's going to rule over us. It doesn't sound real promising. 
especially as we see the rest of this story. In this, God is not consulted. The Gileadites are in trouble, and they need a warrior to save them, so they look to Jephthah, their mighty warrior, instead of the Lord. He accepts, he wins the war, and it is only described in one verse, chapter 11, verse 33. This is what it says. And Jephthah struck them from Aror to the neighborhood of Manith, 20 cities, and as far as abel Karamim, with a great blow. So the Ammonites were subdued before the people of Israel. And that's all you get. That's all you get. Other than that, up to that point, it's just a bunch of negotiation. Kings looking after each other going, why do you want to fight me? I don't know. Why do you want to fight me? I'll tell you why I want to fight you. Literally what we skipped over. All we get is one verse in this battle, this great battle, that they're willing to sell their souls as a nation over to Jephthah, the gang leader, to come back in and rule and save them. What's up? Well, what's up is on the plains of Gilead, the Ammonite army is defeated. But that is not God's main foe. God's main foe is what's lurking in the hearts of all those in Gilead. And that is self-confidence. Self-confidence. Faith in yourself. Trust in yourself. You got this. You don't need God. That's the main foe that God is going to get after in this story of Jephthah. There is that dangerous enemy that's lurking behind these, the words on these page because here is the deal. Every religion works in this way. God is up here. He is not satisfied with me. I must make sacrifices. I must do things to get his happiness, to get his approval of me, to get what I need from him in any given moment. And that's what God is waging against. It's that moment. It's that's what's lurking in the hearts of all of us. It's fueled by pride and self-assurance and the, the, uh, the ability, the self-ability that you think you're powerful enough to fix yourself. And it's the same religion that lurks in our hearts, in this room. That religion that approaches God with oaths. If you help me, Lord, I'll... It approaches God with works. Well, you know, you gotta give me that raise, Lord. I've been faithful. Then I even set up the chairs. I go and I'll work in the nursery like twice. I, you know you got to, there's an A plus B equals C method to your Christianity. And it ultimately just ends with empty promises, not from God, just from you and from me. See, if only he'll help you get out of the jam that you're in. If only he'll, he'll just speak to you and he'll give you what you want in the time that you want with what you want and whom you want, then you'll obey. That's just conditional love, and God is not after that. He's after unconditional love. And so we, do you do, rubber, do, you do a, a rabbit's feet anymore? Is that, do we, is that a thing? Back in the day, I had like a purple one. I had a, a teal one. You just had rabbit's feet. And it's probably, you don't do that anymore, do we? You put it in your pocket. It's like an actual rabbit's foot. It's dyed. It's like on a keychain. Do you remember this? Thank you. All right, that's where this phrase comes from. We rub our rabbit's foot for luck, and we approach Jesus, and we go, oh, Lord, help us. We need your help. And we get sincere, and we get real serious about our Bible study. We wonder if he's going to answer us. And he might, but it ain't because you're real sincere. It's because he's merciful. 
See, Jephthah models for all of us what happens when we are overconfident in our own works for salvation and not in God's mercy. We begin to think that we can manipulate God with our faithfulness to our rules. Get that now. It's my rule that I'm going to be faithful to. I don't know if you know this, Lord, but I'm really good at this one thing. And he goes, cool, don't much care. Didn't say to do that, whatever that may be. Your thing may be the speed limit. Like, you're the person on the, on the road that I get mad at. Like, nope, says 35, I'm going 34 and no more because the Lord will be angry with me if I go to 36. And that's the only thing he's going to be angry with me about. Or, ooh, let's get real. This is not a part of my notes, but we're on it now. June's coming. What's June? Anybody know? I know because we have two birthdays in the house in June. Pride month. And guess what you're going to do during Pride Month? You're going to boycott Target. And you're going to feel really righteous about it. Like that's your stance for the kingdom. And God's going to bless my finances after that. That's the thing? Wait, that's the thing that we're, we're going we're gonna to fight against. Meanwhile, we'll give ourselves to all sorts of other stuff. Taylor Swift. Or Coldplay. Like, I like Coldplay, but they're not believers. So where do we draw this line of boycotting against the world? I, I just, once you go down that line and you start setting yourself up for these righteous rules that we have, we're right here. Some of you right now are going, I don't understand. I, I like to boycott Target, and I don't like Taylor Swift, and it feels like I'm okay. <laughs> There's something in you, guaranteed. This may not be your thing, but that's okay. I told you, it's not in the notes. Okay, people, we're just flying here. But we are overconfident with our own rules, and we're less concerned about being faithful in the little things to our God and our King. So why does God answer your prayers? Why does he not answer your prayers? When you crack for God for healing and deliverance, he doesn't answer you. Are you able to rest? Or do you say, maybe I didn't do something right? It's Jephthah. We're right here. Well, why do I have all that I have? Why do I have this house? Why do I have this husband or this wife? Why do I have these kids? Like, did I do the right things because I did premarital counseling and then I did postmarital counseling and now I'm in just regular old counseling? What, what, what is this? How is this all working out? It's because I did the things? because God's merciful. And he does what he wants, when he wants, how he wants, with whom he wants. Now, does that mean we just get to live like crazy people? Jephthah would warn against that. So we read one of the most heinous parts of Judges that we'll read. It's not the worst. I hate to tell y'all, this is not the worst. Where he makes a vow Right after, like the victory is basically in his hands, he's foolish enough to go back and go, look, all right, hey, if you give me this victory, Lord, look, they're, gonna, they're establishing me as king and as ruler, and they're giving me position and power, and I don't want to lose that. I've been rejected my whole life. So if you'll, if, you'll, if you'll confirm what they also have already done, and just agree with our plans, Lord, I'll give you whatever comes out of my house. you got to be asking yourself, what did he expect to come out of his house. His wife? Not out of the realm of possibilities. 
Who comes out of your house after dad's been gone after a long work trip? It's your kids. Your kids come, Daddy, Daddy, I'm so glad you're here. He had never gone away on a work trip. Who he was expecting was not an animal. Who he was expecting was a servant. And he was ready to have human sacrifice. See, he had picked up how they do things in this world. And he started to integrate human worship, human sacrifice into how you please God. So all of a sudden, he's in deep, deep water. Ultimately, because he has taken on the religion of the world around him, and he is foolish in his religious uh, posture, ultimately. He wants to keep his honor and position, and of course, he only thinks of one thing, and it's making a burnt offering to his God. And he wants to manipulate him. He says, look, if I'm this faithful, I mean, I'll, I'll even offer whatever comes out of my house, Lord. Surely you'll give me what I need, what I want in this moment. You see, what Jephthah had forgotten is that there was a provision in God's law to buy yourself out of a vow. And he didn't know it. Or if he didn't know it, he didn't care about it. We don't really know which one it was. But ultimately what we see is this beautiful picture of Jephthah's daughter, and I'll get to that in just a moment. But let me just wrap up Jephthah. You see, most of us will apply Jephthah's story by avoiding vows. And I would say that's absolutely true. Jesus says, let your yes be yes, and your no be no. Anything beyond that is not very good. No. Evil. Oh, dang, Jesus. So, are we making promises? Are we swearing on my mother's grave? Like, that's not a part of the Christian world. It's, I live so faithfully and so consistent with my word, you can trust me to follow through. I don't have to say more than that. That's the kind of life that God wants us to live. That's good. That's a good application to Jephthah. There's all sorts of, uh, of realities in this that, like he says, don't do this. Don't, don't make vows, especially if they're rash. But if that's all we get, we miss the deeper point. God will not be manipulated by our works, nor will we gain favor with him, even if we offer our most precious treasure to him, if we're doing it to get something, instead of just doing it because he's worth it. Whether we ever get an answer to our prayers, will we continue to be faithful? Whether we ever get what we want, get that better life, will we be faithful to him? That's the big question here for Jephthah. And this leads us down to our final point. Again, not just like what do we do and how, what do we do when God can't be manipulated, but really I think this is the last question that we'll ask. Why are you faithful? Why do you sacrifice any dollar to any church? Something worth considering. Why do you sacrifice to come up here and set up and tear down? Why do you sacrifice to love your neighbor when they just had a baby? Why do you do what you do? What is it about this life 
beyond what Jesus tells you to do, but why are you faithful to it? However many years you've been walking in this. You've, you've experienced enough disappointment in life for you to be like, you know what? I just can't do this anymore. And there's people that have done that. But you haven't. You're here. This is not an easy church to be a part of. We raise the bar intentionally, like on all sorts of levels. But you're here, and you're, 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 you're pursuing faithfulness. Why? You see, I think that we can find the answer to that in, in, these, in this beautiful little picture of Jephthah's daughter. There's one character in all these stories that stands out as a bright light against the deep darkness of Abimelech and Jephthah, and it is Jephthah's daughter. We don't even know her name. His daughter keeps her father to his vow, even though it would mean certain death. Why? Why does she do that? Same, way, same reason you do. Because it would be better to die being blessed by God than to live under a curse from him. She knows that. She's dedicated her whole life to delayed gratification. Isn't that what she mourns? What does she mourn? She mourns her virginity. We don't know how old she was, but if you're mourning your virginity, you're probably not five. Probably a bit older than that. And so she's mourning her, her loss. She's mourning the gratification that she had let out for so long, that she had delayed for so long. Because you've got to think, the culture that she's in, they're going to the temple to worship through prostitution. And here stands this young woman or lady who has delayed gratification and she mourns it. What a beautiful thing to mourn. Purity, devotion, holiness. What a beautiful thing. Because I don't know about you, but if you've got two months to live, what are you going to do? And you know when you get back from those two months, you're going to die. It's a terminal sentence. What are you going to do? Still be faithful? Or are you going to go, YOLO, I'm out. I'm going to go get married or not. doesn't really matter. And I'm going to go do what I've been wanting to do. No, no, this... She has these beautiful words that are found somewhere in here, verses 36, yeah. This is what I think we need to get from all this. My father, you have opened your mouth to the Lord. Do to me. Actually, Israel says the same thing to God. We've sinned. Do to us whatever it is that you need to do. You do to me. Whatever it is that you need to do. Against the backdrop of vengeance. Against the backdrop of just only really being faithful when God does what I want him to do. Do to me. Her posture to her father reminds us of Jesus' posture to his father. Though I do not deserve death and I am innocent of all impurity, do to me your will and not yours. But will we be faithful to a God who not only demands much, but gives much. Will we be faithful to a God whom we cannot manipulate? See, we look back at chapter 10 and we see how God sees our motives. He sees us when we are not repentant, but we are only sorry that we got caught. That's Israel in chapter 10. If you could just take away the consequences, Lord, to our crazy actions, that would be great. And he says, that's not repentance. Go into your own little gods that you guys chose. He knows our hearts. He knows the condition of our hearts at all times. And sometimes he will discipline us. But the only thing worse than being disciplined by God is him giving us over to what we want. 
Romans 1 will tell us that, verse 26. Or sorry, verse 24 through 28. I don't have time to read it. But in these moments where we don't get what we want, do we see a God who is vengeful when we are not repentant? Do we see a God who is vengeful when we're, when we're not obedient, when we're not faithful? No, we see a God who's merciful. See, will we be faithful to a God who not only gives us over to ourselves, but also sometimes, many times, always, I would say, groans for our returning and true repentance? Did you see the message of hope in these four chapters? We read a lot. I've talked a lot. But did you see the the verse of hope? She paused on it. Don't know if you read it or you caught it. It's right there in the middle of chapter 10. Verse 16. Here's where we end on. So they put away their foreign gods from among them and served the Lord. And he became impatient over the misery of his people. Praise God that we have a God that grows impatient, that longs for us to not suffer anymore that responds to us not because we're repentant, but because of his great compassion for sinners. That he sees the suffering of our own doing, he sees our own consequences, and he grows impatient with our suffering and our misery. You wanna know why God answers you? It's because he becomes impatient over our misery and our rescue does not depend upon the quality of our repentance or the precision of our obedience, but on the abundance of God's mercy. So do you just pursue faithfulness to get from God to manipulate the outcome or because he is worth it, because the message of hope, though only half a verse, is much brighter than all of the darkness in the book of Judges combined that points us to our king so is it madness it's all the chaos that we create madness i mean from a human perspective it can be but from god's perspective he's been behind these words and these pages all along why does he do what he does why didn't he intervene for jephthah's daughter or the israelites once and for all man no one knows i don't know but what i do know is that he's merciful What I do know is that he continues to answer the cries of his people. And what I do know is that no matter what you're going through, he has compassion for your misery. And if you need proof of that, you look only to the Son of God, Jesus himself who saw the misery of his people and took on their sins upon himself. He is the man of sorrows, Isaiah says. Why? Because he was sorrowful? Yes. For his sin? No. For yours and for mine. As we look in Judges and we see crazy chaos, but we look at the whole beautiful story and we see a God who loves us and cares for us and responds to his people. Praise be to God and may we live for him because he is worth it. Let's pray. Oh, Lord, our God, a lot can be said about judges. A lot can be said about our hearts.
A lot has been said. We just want to hear the words from you. Not from me. Not from one another. So Lord, if we have burned with anger because of some disorientation that happened when we were younger, would you help us sort that out by your spirit? Would you lead us into the truth? Would you lead us into the truth about ourselves? Would you lead us into the truth about others? Would you lead us into the truth about you? During a time of Lent and we're getting more disciplined on purpose and intentional, maybe this is the week where we just start to, man, I'm struggling, I don't know what to do, I gotta reach out for help. Would you give us the courage and compassion to do so? If our faithfulness is dependent upon you rescuing us from our enemies, and we're discouraged, we've been losing a lot of battles lately, not real sure about where we stand in this whole thing, would you encourage us by your presence? Would you answer prayers? Would you answer our prayers, Lord? I don't know what we're, what we're desperate for, what we're asking for. I just pray that you'd answer our prayers. I pray that we would pray boldly, consistently, and that our lives would be marked with faithfulness because you've been faithful. Grace because you've been gracious. Mercy towards others because you've been merciful. And forgiveness because just as we have been forgiven in Christ Jesus, so must we and may we forgive others. Would you help us walk the narrow road, Lord, by your power, for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.